William, he decided not to borrow Dickens's tearful conclusion in A Tale of Two Cities, in which the aspiring lover goes to his death and leaves the lovers in the broken triangle together. Rather, Dick Dungeon goes off recognizing that his lifestyle isn't theirs. However, the last line of the scenario suggests the sentimental twist that he denied himself. The death of B, the husband, would provide a happy ending of the matrimonial sort, meaning, of course, that there would be another uh, link-up in another marriage. Shaw preferred ambiguity, however, as in life, where neat endings, according to audience expectation, seldom happen. Could other plays by Shaw work in new contexts? I've tried to show that such creativity is in Shaw's own spirit. The Doctor's Dilemma is still effective when played in its Edwardian context, but his concepts would be contemporary with very little change. Louis Dupadat dies of tuberculosis, denied the experimental new cure of Dr. Ridgeon, and victimized by Dr. Cutler Walpole's obsession with surgically removing everyone's mythical nuciform sac. One could now substitute a magic bullet for a currently fashionable disease and a substitute pharmacological or surgical preoccupation. It wouldn't require much change. The ethical dilemmas remain with us, even in another dimension of the play. Does something extraordinary in a person, if we recognize it, or if we are fooled by fakery or failures in perception, create an entitlement to extraordinary treatment denied ordinary people? It's easy to see how that could be uh, upstaged to modern times. One later play that has been updated easily and often is The Apple Cart, uh, produced in 1929. Ideas about leadership and authority and the mixed political bag that is parliamentary democracy remain with us. And the play took on the mantle of prophecy only seven years later, when the threat of the king's abdication, on which the play turns, became a reality in Edward VIII's real-life abdication. Shaw sent the play in a futuristic 1960 since updated in contemporary productions to the future. It takes very little tinkering with the dialogue to really stage the apple cart. The only event that might doom it would be if the United States rejoined what is left of the British Empire, as Ambassador Manhattan announces to King Magnus. Some of Shaw's history plays and fable plays must remain in their period. They require imagination of a different sort to keep them fresh. He wrote roles in which even minor characters have lines so appealing that actors used to major roles were eager to shine in them. There isn't a role in his Good King Charles's Golden Days that cannot sparkle with the right casting. But Shaw began his playwriting career at a time when playgoers and concertgoers wanted value for money, and that meant a long afternoon or evening. Even a long play was often preceded by a curtain raiser, as they were called the reason for many of Shaw's one-act plays. A concert began then with an overture. It might have been followed by a concerto and two symphonies. When in 1924, the Theater Guild of New York cabled Shaw for permission to make cuts to St. Joan so that audiences could make the last trains to the suburbs, Shaw cabled back, run later trains. <laughs> we don't have to do that now. With only a few remarkable exceptions today, a play that exceeds 110 minutes is too long. The long speeches in Shaw were intended then as operatic arias in prose. 
Now an extraordinary rhetorical flourish, such as that by King Magnus, about standing for the future and the past, for the posterity that has no vote, and the tradition that never had any, which brought audiences to their feet in 1929, must pragmatically be shortened. Entire exchanges must be cast upon the cutting room floor. The sanctity of the complete text, unaltered, is part of the Shavian past and unrealistic to the opportunities of the future. Even Shaw's greatest chronicle play, St. John, must bow to the inevitable, despite Shaw's cable, and be trimmed down for on-stage viability. Such editing, however, must be done in every case with respect to the work. One regrettable occasion, uh, the Shaw Festival in Canada cut the entire epilogue from St. John, turning it unintentionally into a different drama altogether. Even the most sanguinary of Greek tragedies by Aeschylus or Sophocles was followed by a Seder play. The epilogue, the St. John was Shaw's Seder play. The cut was equivalent to medical malpractice. Rodell and I refused to make the trip to Niagara on the lake to see this travesty, but we learned afterwards that the Shaw State trustees insisted on discovering the tampering that the final scene be restored. Grudgingly, the management inserted a note in the programs that since it had to stage the epilogue, it would be done after an interval permitting audiences uninterested in it to leave. <laughs> then it would be performed script in hand by the cast in their ordinary, in their ordinary street clothes. The actors, dismayed by the amputation, read the restored lines with such verve that playgoers stayed and cheered. Ordinary street clothes are no bar to doing Shaw. Anticipating the way his own Don Juan and Hill would be performed after his death, Shaw observed in 1900 before the play was even written, I saw Browning's Luria performed in the lecture theater of University College London with a pair of curtains for scenery and the performers in ordinary evening dress. It produced a hundred times more illusion, he thought, than an open-air performance of As You Like It, fully costumed and set, which he had just attended. And I'm quoting him, a play that cannot do better without scenery than with hired trappings, he contended, is not worth attention. When the first drama quartet, uh, the name A Bow to the Music of Shaw's Prose, performed Don Juan in Hell in 1951, the participants were in formal attire, like instrumentalists in an orchestra. The production was a long-running success, setting the pattern for future productions of the Hell scene as a standalone work. <clears throat> the words and the verb worked, and they still do. Yet even that relatively short play requires now some cuts. Some lines worked in their time, but they now ring wrong or are a drag of a dramatic momentum. Many of Shaw's plays still work brilliantly in the time in which they are set, and need only the right actors to, to animate lines in which the vivacity is already built in. St. Joan cannot be played in any other time than her own, I think. Androcles and the Lion can only exist in classical Rome. Some director might prove me wrong. The sardonic discussion plays, Getting Married, Miss Alliance, and Heartbreak House, set in England just before the Great War, uh, need to be played, I think, in historical context, just as the pre-war suffragist satire Fanny's first play. While Fanny was Shaw's longest-running hit, chalking up 622 performances 
1911 and 1912. His prologue and epilogue, satirizing contemporary theater critics, has no relevance to contemporary audiences, and I feel now they should be cut. Uh, they have no, no business in the play, in the here and now. Shaw would understand and approve. Only a few years later, in 1916, Charles McDonough asked Shaw to permit a reduction in cast for a revival of the play in Birmingham, citing the wartime shortage of good male actors. He wanted what Shaw, cut, what Shaw called the induction and the epilogue cut. Shaw offered to write a new prologue, in which Fanny O'Dowda, the young writer of the play, as we learned in the induction, comes forward through the curtain to announce in verse that she's going to perform the role of the young feminist Margaret Knox. We're going to act a play, she began. I shall be in it. Her lines are reminiscent of the openings of Restoration Plays, in which Anil Gwynn or Elizabeth Barry opened the play with a curtain speech. In the last of her 82 lines, and this cuts the induction quite a bit, Fanny says, Thank you for hearing me. I'm finished. And she goes off stage and plays Margaret Knox in the play. Shaw failed to finish the new prologue in time for rehearsals, and the lines were never used. But again, they suggest Shaw's flexibility about changes. Somebody ought to use them. Uh, the changes, of course, were helped dramatically by the cable about St. Joan in New York. Uh, his practice was to accommodate the production needs thereafter. Without dishonesty to show's intent, so was me. Uh, as with Fanny's first play, many of Shaw's plays are bound to their time and place by events. Uh, yet even those when staged with flair have resonances beyond their time and place. Shaw clearly got some of his inspiration for Heartbreak House uh, from Euripides' The Trojan Women, as the names of some of the characters suggest. In the 20th century, a 1930s play about the inevitability of the Trojan War and, in effect, the forthcoming Second World War by Jean Giraudoux, uh, whose own play echoes some of Shaw's, was filled with deliberate irony. The Trojan War shall not take place, was its title. Shaw's play could have been called the same. Heartbreak House might very well be entitled The Great War Shall Not Take Place and it would resonate with the inevitability of unstoppable wars. Plays from Woodward's houses to the millionaires and beyond are replete with amoral bosses and arrogant businessmen and women whose rampant profiteering sounds like today's and perhaps tomorrow's newspapers. Other plays are rich with alternative and timeless meanings. Mrs. Warren's profession is not merely about female prostitution. The drama suggests how prostitution of oneself for economic need or gain can take other forms. People's loyalty and services, not only of the sexual kind, can be bought. It's also about one of the biblical commandments, honor thy father and thy mother. Is one required to honor an accidental parent or, or a dishonorable one? These are timeless dilemmas, unrestricted to the decade in which the play is set. Similarly, Whatever the laws and practices are regarding marriage and divorce, courtship and companionship, getting married in this alliance resonate beyond 1908 and 1910, but only if they're played with a verb that Shaw wrote into them. Other plays have different kinds of timelessness in them. Passion, Poison, and Petrifaction, a one-act trifle from July 1905, strikes some audiences now with awe 
as it anticipates the absurdity of the human condition. It anticipates a UNESCO's The Bald Soprano with its, quote, English clock striking 17 English strokes. It anticipates UNESCO by nearly half a century, and it still works brilliantly in performance. Some homes, after all, still have clocks that tick and strike. The play opens with a bedroom clock striking 16. The lady, how much did the clock strike, Phyllis? 16, my lady. That means 11 o'clock, does it not? 11 o'clock, my lady. In the morning, it means half past two. So if you hear it strike 16 during your slumbers, do not rise. Will your lord, Phyllis asked, will your ladyship not undress? The lady glancing through where the fourth wall is missing. Not tonight, Phyllis. Not under the circumstances. <laughs> the play has an absurdity and a contemporaneity that would work anytime. Irrational dialogue might suggest an irrational universe. Shaw in his plays both agrees and disagrees with that premise, as his, his technique comes in part from the debates he witnessed and participated in that were part of his education as a young man in London in the 1880s. Here also, as in much of Shaw, we see in the, we in the audience realize that the playwright is giving us presentational rather than representational drama. We're aware that we're audiences of watching a play and that understanding, that understanding kept in front of us keeps the plays alive. Although many, if not most of his plays, uh, we can, from understanding, uh, form sympathetic relationships with the characters, we can simultaneously, in many of them, also see the plays in a detached and critical spirit. This duality, this parallel dimension, is not only integral to their verb, but to the play of ideas. Thus, Shaw reminds us of Don Juan and Hell that these are actors who are talking, and perhaps even talking too much, in The Doctor's Dilemma, the pushy journalist boasts that he's a disciple of Bernard Shaw. In Miss Alliance, the book obsessed John Tarman, advising the others on stage what to read, observes, Still, you know, the Superman may come. The Superman's an idea. I 